0: Sir Baldwin, the T of Brass and Carson. too late. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is Pete Beatty. Who's Pete Beatty? A lot of people would ask in response to that. You might be asking yourself. I'll tell you who Pete Beatty is. Pete Beatty is uh, an editor, uh, or something like an editor, for the Classical, an online sporting publication for sophisticated people, like Pete Beatty. Uh, he's also a former uh, book editor, a former editor for publisher Bloomsbury Press where, uh, among other books, he uh, was the editor for Craig Robinson's Flip Flop Flyball, which is a great book. And, uh, and so therefore, uh, we can say Pete Beatty is virtuous. Uh, he's also a person who, um, uh, who's uh, quite amusing on Twitter. Um, and mostly, uh, as I mentioned in what follows, uh, um, what, uh, what I've uh, endeavored to do here is to abuse my position as the host of Fangraphs Audio just to just to meet Pete Beatty. Uh, and I think we have a nice conversation. Pete's an interesting guy. He's from Cleveland. He's from or the suburbs of Cleveland. He grew up a Cleveland in uh, Cleveland fan, uh, both the Indians and the Browns and uh, the Cavs, I guess. We don't talk about the Cavs too much, but probably the Cavs. And he's just an amusing person, the sort of person you'd like to know. Um, but you may not because there's so many people in this world. And uh, how are you going to get to know all of them? Uh, but at least you'll, the, we, you will now enter into a one-sided relationship with Pete Beatty. That's that's more sides than most relationships have, let me tell you. i tell you that from experience. Anyway, what is it? Fangraphs Audio uh, features Pete Beatty of the classical and elsewhere, and it begins right now. Um, that you don 't care to answer, uh, you should feel very comfortable telling me uh, to shove it okay is, cool. is that is that fair yeah totally okay, good because um i don 't well i 't plan on getting um into that sort of territory, but people are all all uh people are different, all sorts of people have different opinions i don 't know if you know about that
1: i 've heard about that
0: yes that 's what <laughs> that 's what the world teaches us <laughs> everyone 's <laughs> different is um I do want to start by telling you though, and this is something that might please you. Uh, just because you know it, ex- because you like him, is I was just talking with or to uh, Craig Robinson. Yes, noted illustrator um, and uh, artist and and author Craig Robinson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a chance. Uh, there's a chance. I'm not going to say it's a hundred percent chance, but there's a there's a chance that he might begin contributing to uh, not over of which I'm the editor.
1: Yeah, he mentioned that. Um, I actually worked on. Craig, I edited Craig's book. Uh, his most recent book for what, Fly Ball. Yeah. And, um, he was very excited to be working with Knock just because I, I, I know he likes to keep, um, a, an entire foot or maybe even like the lower half of his body in the sort of baseball internet because yeah. he's an internet sort of, he's a citizen of the internet and I think Knock is a good venue for his, his wry take on baseball.
0: Yeah. And what a lower half of a body it is
1: it's a it's a wonderful yeah
0: yeah (laughs) Uh, now have you have you gotten a chance because I know you're you're an American person I am and uh, um, Craig Robinson has said on this very podcast that he's not allowed in America (laughs) and so I'm wondering if you've if you've met him in person and if you did was it in was it in the United States
1: I have actually I have met Craig in person multiple times. Um I saw him very briefly in New York right when we were starting to talk about doing a book um way back in the in the two thousand and aughts. Mm-hmm. Um and then last uh last fall I actually went down to Mexico and visited with uh him and Eric Nussbaum, um the uh the sort of Mexico City contingent of the American baseball internet.
0: Yeah. Yes, and you saw them there. Is what your is what the, yeah. the, the idea is? Yeah. Yes. Um, what I'll say. Uh, what uh, one thing I'll add. Um, I'm uh, I'm currently abroad right now. I mean, I'm a man, but I'm living abroad. <laughs> and uh, evergreen is what that joke is. By the way, that's why. a
1: classic. And
0: um, and uh, so uh, sometimes in France my internet stops, but it comes back immediately. So uh, it would only be oh, okay. a minute of, di- of disappointment. Yeah, okay, no problem. A minute of I- disappointment. The life of. Just, just really, what?
1: Like just before uh, you called, I was reading an article about how a water main broke underneath the subway that I take to work, so um, I may have more time than I necessarily thought I did.
0: Oh, so how does, so are you allowed? So what would you do in that case? Now, what, th- this is um, we'll connect these dots in a little bit, but I think that you are currently involved in media of some sort.
1: Yeah, I am a. I'm a. I work for an ebook publishing company where I acquire. Um, I basically sign up backlist books, which means old books. Um, to be published as ebooks, because books that were because books that were published before the ebook revolution, as some people like to call it, uh, <laughs> were not were not digitized. Um, that means there's a whole sort of several millennia of human printed existence to roll up into ebooks. And before this job, I was a book editor at a sort of traditional dead tree based book publishing company.
0: Now, of the people that you have heard say the words ebook revolution aloud uh what percentage of them uh, say that say it ironically and what percentage say it earnestly
1: um it's uh you know it's hard to say with business i think um you can say things ironically but still mean it in a dollars and cents way um but i i the digitization of you know the written word is a thing that's happening I don't necessarily know that it's revolutionary it's revolutionary if you're a reader because it's possible to have you know centuries of, of writing on a on a e reader or phone or whatever the size of you know, the palm of your hand, which is really cool. Um it doesn't materially change your ability to read that stuff. Um you still have to spend time reading it or <laughs> you know it still takes exactly as much time to read it um to read it well or read it poorly or however you choose to read it. Um uh, but it is it is um I think a good thing that all that like, digitized <laughs> um in terms of maintaining the value of the written word and books and making sure that writers get paid it has um it has its stickier aspects
0: right yeah yeah it, it does turn out that you still have to spend all the same amount of time reading the book um and um they, they, somehow there's no way to have the information just put into your brain and all the pleasures or <laughs> pains associated with reading a text
1: yes that's true yeah um, in order to develop a response to the text, you actually have to read it. Although some people have done a great deal of work in judging things without reading them. So.
0: Yeah, that's true. Yes, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, in fact, like yeah, if there was a way for like the works of Faulkner, for example, <laughs> if I could have just have read them as opposed to – if I could be at a place <laughs> in my life where I have read the works of Faulkner, I feel like I would be in a better place, Yeah. but that would require – Reading the words of Wagner, um, <laughs> which are complicated, they're difficult. They seem to keep the reader at arm's length.
1: Yeah, no, and and sometimes further.
0: Yeah, that's right. And it's like I just want to hug you, William Faulkner. <laughs> why why are you so distant? Yeah. So the, <laughs> the point let's let's establish why you're here. Mm-hmm. You you may not even know, but I know, <laughs> uh, and that's because. Um, that's because, for example, I knew that um, that you were that you were helpful in getting Craig Robinson's book published,
1: um, mm.
0: and it's a book that that makes the world a better thing for having uh, for it having been published. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, I also know that you are um, that you are associated with the Classical, yes, uh, which is an a, a internet a online publication uh, dealing with. Um, i um occasionally i mean i guess uh in some ways long form works but uh it's a, a thinking man's um or or woman's um uh, sort yeah, of, uh,
1: um sort of genderless beings uh <laughs> sports uh what do you call it venue
0: venue yeah and then um and of course uh and you also uh well just this this is silly but this is a reason to want to know someone is that um uh i follow you on twitter and uh, oh. you, you occasionally will make amusing comments and i say I say I would like to use i would like to abuse uh, my role as the host of fangraphs audio uh, <laughs> to meet someone who makes amusing comments if I'm not abusing um my power what 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 good is power anyway exactly
1: exactly yeah, yeah we have to we have to avail ourselves of the means at our disposal um uh, the um and I should say that also you are the author uh you are a contributor to the classical you are i believe the only person to have written any avant-garde plays about Cleveland Indians number three starter Corey Kluber mm-hmm. um, let alone several um, which were rolled up into a delightful omnibus edition in uh, a not too distant past issue of School Magazine
0: yeah by the way great uh, excellent use of omnibus you you who have worked and continue to work in publishing uh, various stripes must you must get to use the word omnibus with some measure of frequency I would think
1: <laughs> not as much as I would like um, oh. it's a uh, it doesn't come up that often. That's too bad. Uh,
0: I'm I an owner of the uh, the the Rumple omnibus. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Rumpel books. He's a uh, mm-hmm. a drunken British barrister.
1: They're all drunken,
0: right? Yeah, well, there you go. Right, <laughs> but he's he's the funniest of them.
1: He's the drunkest and funniest. <laughs> yeah, that's true.
0: Right. And uh, and I was able. Um, that gave me the opportunity to purchase and then to read my first omnibus.
1: Yeah, I think the first omnibus, the first time I ever encountered the term was in, this is slightly dorky, but I'm slightly dorky, yeah. in the novelization of the Star Wars movies were published in omnibus edition, and between uh, the Star Wars thing and the use of a word that I didn't know, I think 10-year-old me was just like immediately captivated <laughs> and, and had to purchase that and read it, the B. Dalton at the mall.
0: Um, oh, B. Dalton, Uh. Oh. <laughs> oh, it's like simultaneously, obviously not a great bookstore, but um, but it's do they still exist? B Dalton's?
1: There is um, they're greatly reduced. I think there are a handful of B Dalton stores still mm-hmm. flying the flag. It's like the, the Ottoman Empire of uh, or the Byzantine <laughs> Empire of uh, bookstores. They're reduced to just their stronghold.
0: Yeah, well, it's um, there was there was definitely one at the Steeplegate Mall in Concord, New Hampshire. I can tell you that.
1: Yeah, there is one across the street from the McDonald's and uh Lens Crafters in uh, Middleburg Heights, Ohio.
0: Now yeah, so that's a this is a uh, this is what we call a flawless segue. Yep. Um you 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 are um interested in sport. That's uh, that's clear from from your professional and um I guess personal ventures. Um Personal venture being your uh, your utterances on Twitter, um, and uh, you, you, so you 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 have involved yourself with sport, and I, and I think that a lot of that comes from being a native, uh, not not Cleveland or proper, but Cleveland and Cleveland on the inside. Yeah, right. I'm
1: from a small town called Berea, which is where um, I think the only reason anyone who's not from Berea would know where Berea is is because every press release from the Cleveland Browns corporate headquarters is datelined Berea, Ohio.
0: Okay and so so there you are living in living in berea um, <laughs> and uh I'm going to imagine that um what you're what you do you do the baseball you do the football
1: i'm i have a a rotten relationship with the Cleveland Browns because I think that they have um without getting all Dave ear in I think that they've betrayed the public trust just in terms of not actually putting a good team on the field. And also just being like the guy who owns them is under FBI investigation for ripping off truckers, like a, like not honoring fuel coupons at his truck stop empire. And they just have a general sort of seedy air in this um, low, these, these dark times that um, I don't care for. Um, I can't shake them uh, entirely. Um, a friend of mine described um, my relationship with the browns is like a bad catholic marriage where we're sort of <laughs> staying together for the kids but we really hate each other um, but right. there are no kids
0: and that's great for the kids too by the way yes the kids love it <laughs> the kids love it um. um so yeah well this is this is what happens i suppose right is um is cuz i have to think about this too the way that uh, uh, supporters of teams the, the the links to which they're taken advantage of um because they have this bond with their team, right? I mean, obviously, uh, there's uh, questions of stadium financing and how how dirty that is. Uh, and then the, as soon as the stadium's built, uh, the tickets are sold for prices that, um, you know, middle class people generally can't afford. Mm-hmm. Um, new stadiums are built so that there can be, uh, you know, more luxury boxes. So people who don't particularly care about the game even uh, can have um, high-powered business meetings. Uh, maybe, or, you know, it could be used to facilitate business. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, uh, there are endless ways in which, uh, money is, money is reaped, uh, by people who already have it, uh, after having been sown by people who don't, particularly.
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: And, uh, this happens. And it's all because there's this, on the one hand, you could say that the, um, that these, uh, captains of industry are taking advantage of, are taking advantage of the fans. And I, I agree that that's the case. At the same time, here try this on for size and see how how it feels. At the <laughs> same time, maybe it's difficult because those same captains of industry could never actually possess the same sort of relationship with the club uh that the that the common fan could.
1: I think that's true. I mean, it's any time that you start to um sort of tie up your personal feels, as they say, on the internet with <laughs> What is effectively for-profit corporate spectacle, yeah. let's, let's call sports that, yeah. um, you know, there's some compromises you have to make. You have to understand that, you know, the we, the sort of imagined we, is only imagined. Um, you know, Brandon Whedon does not know who I am. Um, he does not know how I feel about him. He probably would be better off not knowing. Um
0: It would make make everyone in the room uncomfortable. Yeah, it would just
1: be – it would be (laughs) awkward all around. Um, And his privacy would probably feel invaded. Um, And so that's true in every case. And that's where I think the sort of winning and losing thing gets frustrating because it's just like the Browns are terrible. They're really probably, if not the worst team in the NFL, just on overall kind of – Gestalt's gotta be bottom five. Um, <laughs> you know, they keep firing their coaches. They're just they're terrible. That um that's sort of I think a universal, you know. You want your team to win, when they don't win, it sort of breeds this loser stuff. The Browns in particular are sort of tricky because they literally ran away. I mean, they kind of like went out for a pack of cigarettes in nineteen ninety-five and never came back. So there's a whole generation of Cleveland sports fans who had this team that always lost at heartbreaking moments, but it was still a sort of um this, this axis of the earth that, you know, you rotated around and you lived and died with. And then the team said, you know, we don't even need you. Um, we're going to go away. Um, and to, to sort of make it even worse, they then proceeded to become extremely successful and win multiple Super Bowls. Um, in a, in, and I actually, I feel like sort of an apostate because I like their Ravens. Um, this is probably sort of that I, hate myself or something, but I, I like the Ravens. And I <laughs> root for them. Um as long as they're not playing the Browns. Um so and then, you know, just the losing. The losing is bad too. And Cleveland as as a whole, I don't feel entirely qualified to talk about this because I haven't really lived in Cleveland full time since I was eighteen, but or in the Cleveland area. But Cleveland as a whole sort of nasty chip on its shoulder. I'd say it might say it has some flex of shoulder in its chip about its <laughs> status in the world about its declining population, about being sort of the butt of jokes, things like that. And in a weird way, it's sports franchises, um, have acted that out. They've sort of performed Cleveland's, um, you know, kind of low self-esteem for the whole world to see And really. And sometimes when, you know, like the LeBron thing or, um, in the case of the Browns sort of being in a 12 year losing streak, um, pretty grotesque ways, um, and often hilarious also.
0: Uh, you, you might have, you must have also been party to some degree, because I think we're maybe, I'm a 30, I'm 34, are you around there?
1: I am 32.
0: Okay, so you, but you must have been party to some degree to, to um, those uh, some su- uh, successful early, or I should say, let's see, what was it, mid to late 90s Cleveland yeah. Indians teams?
1: Yes, that is why I think I am an Indians fan, <laughs> is yeah. that I can remember them being good. Uh, very good, in a sort of joyous way, in my lifetime.
0: Yeah, and, and they were—they were—they uh, must have been a fun club to watch. So I was actually a—not a, a, uh, really so much now, but uh, I was a, a very strong Red Sox fan uh, for, mm. for some of those. And I know that uh, those two clubs met in a memorable uh, what a championship series, maybe one time, or a they, divisional series. They played in
1: the '95 ALDS. Uh, which uh, ended with a Tony Pena walk-off, at least one game did, um, that was the Kevin Kennedy Red Sox. And then they played in, I think the Indians beat them again in the ALDS in 97, maybe. Or no, maybe that was the Yankees. And then, But then the, the true sort of comeuppance was uh, when the Red Sox beat the 1999 Indians in the first round of the playoffs after the Indians were up two games to nothing.
0: Right, yeah, and I think that involved uh wasn't it six innings of uh, no hit baseball courtesy Pedro Martinez. Yes,
1: courtesy of like, injured Pedro. Yeah,
0: Pedro Martinez who couldn't lift his his arm above <laughs> his his head, but he was like throwing from the three quarter slot. Yeah, uh, and, and that was nuts. And I believe did that game not also feature uh, two? It might have been that game. Or it might have been another because it was a high scoring series. I think um, two home runs by Troy O'Leary.
1: Yeah, that was the last game, yeah. including a grand slam.
0: Including a grand slam um, on in both cases, following uh, intentional walks to Nomar Garciaparra. Yes. Yeah.
1: Well, that was the thing is that Nomar Garciaparra was literally hitting a double off the top of the wall every time he batted. And Mike Hargrove, who is a fine manager, you know, he's smart enough to say like, okay, this guy's beating the crap out of us. We should probably not pitch to him. Um, unfortunately, he ran into Troy O'Leary which is, uh, too bad. That's only actually the Troy O'Leary Grand Slam is only the second most emotionally destructive Grand Slam hit by um, an otherwise unremarkable Red Sox in Cleveland Indians post-season history. Um, J.D. Drew's Grand Slam off Fausto Carmona in 2007 is the worst one by far.
0: Yes. Yeah, right. And in fact, I've actually got um, – this is an embarrassing episode in my life. Was I was at a Red Sox bar in Portland, Oregon, uh, for m- multiple games in that series. Um and I got, I got in an in 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 embarrassing way, cause it's not something you're supposed to do in Portland either. But I, I was at this bar, and so people came into it, not knowing that a number of Red Sox fans would also go there. And they were just like, and, and Cleveland happened to be winning this one game, they're like, oh, glad to see Cleveland's winning. And I got, I just got real lippy with them. I just, <laughs> <laughs> like I got, I just, um started making, um Abusive remarks in their general direction, <laughs> and it's something that uh, had I been maybe a little bit more sober or a little less involved in the in the game, uh, for whatever reason, would I would have never have done. But uh, this is, I guess, also part of the spell of uh, sports fandom.
1: It does. It gets you fired up. I remember getting into a shouting match that was getting pretty ugly with a pretty tough-looking dude at um, in the outfield of U.S. Cellular in Chicago, where I used to live, because Marty Cordova hit a home run for the Indians in 2001, and I was talking all manner of guff, and the gentleman disagreed with my comportment and (laughs) let me know about it. Um, So when you can get that fired up about Marty Cordova, imagine what actually meaningful things can do to you.
0: So, So... So th- those other te- those teams too were also they- that-, that was uh, the crazy offensive teams that's what they were.
1: Yes, the 99 Indians scored 1000 runs. I believe 1006 runs.
0: And I should probably know this but it, um, it maybe it tends more towards trivia but this is something that teams don't do a lot no, that's
1: a lot. Yeah. Can, you, can you agree with that? <laughs> I would I would agree with that assessment.
0: Only the finest uh, in baseball analysis on this on this edition of Fangraphs Audio. But
1: they also gave up. I mean, a, not a thousand runs, but a lot. I mean, their rotation was not um, not great.
0: Right. It's almost sort of like the, it's like you maybe they let like a teenage boy be in charge of the team. He's like, <laughs> I just want to see hits. Hits are the best. Hits are so good.
1: It was a t- baseball team very much informed by Ken Griffey Jr. Baseball for Super Nintendo, where you could swing at literally every pitch. Um, they were a lot of
0: fun to watch. They were a lot of fun to watch. Would any players from that team have been have featured in Ken Griffey Jr. Baseball? Yeah, the older guys, Lofton, um, Albert
1: Bell was no longer on in the Indians. Um, Jim Tomey was probably in it. I think a young, sort of gangly Manny Ramirez may have appeared in... Um, well, maybe not, because the rosters in I think about Griffey Junior. baseball probably more than is necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, the rosters from that are from '94 or like the, the end of the '93 season. So you got your Wayne Kirby's and your um, a couple other legends, maybe still in there.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, Wayne Kirby was a player on the Cleveland. I'm assuming. Yes, yes, he yes. was a fiction. It was an important part of the Cleveland roster.
1: No, no, no. Uh, He's sort of a fifth outfielder. (laughs) Okay. Fourth and a half.
0: Now, how does a person um, how does a person um, go from Cleveland um, to to New York?
1: I went to school in Chicago, and then I wound up working for an academic publisher, uh, the University of Chicago Press, for about three and change years, and then I wanted to work for a commercial publisher, actually. I wanted to work on the kind of books that I read. Um, And I I still remember getting a copy of – one of the really exciting things about working in publishing is when the books actually deliver, and it feels really cool. You you worked on it, and you finally see it sort of sewn up into a book. But there was this particular book – very important, you know, book of life sciences research called Emerging Threats to Tropical Rainforests. I can't remember the author's name. But on the cover of this book was, um a dead monkey. <laughs> um, on a road. <laughs> and it was supposed to show, like, mankind's encroachment upon the, the citizens of the tropical rainforests, this poor dead monkey. But I just remember getting that and looking at it and thinking, I, I don't want to look at dead monkeys on the cover of books anymore. So then I went and got, um, a job at a company called Bloomsbury in trade publishing in New York. Um, and that's what took me from the midwest to New York
0: William F Lawrence is the editor of that is as, as, uh, <laughs> Carlos present yes, i can uh, I can absolutely confirm <laughs> it's one of there's more images than that but one of it them is dead but one of them is definitely a dead monkey one is a, de- a definite dead monkey um so so okay so the uh, you would have entered then you being 32 you would you would have entered. Publishing then, at a curious time, yeah, yeah, and uh and you're still in the world of publishing, although you're sort of um, i mean dealing with it electronically is sort of what both the i don't know it's not its it's part of the symptom of the change, I suppose, right
1: yeah, I mean I think um the publishing industry as a whole is
0: um,
1: try to say this without um, sort and- of incriminating myself. Um, <laughs> It's a it's a business that is I think one of the best descriptions of the publishing business I've ever heard, and this is not to run it down as a business, but it's a hobby that masquerades as a business. People get into it because they love books. And so it doesn't have the same hard nosedness um that a lot of other industries do. Um you know, it's not uh it's a it's a huge business. I mean there are billion dollar companies publishing um you know, Fifty Shades of Grey and Game of Thrones and things that make lots and lots of money, but the people who actually do a lot of the sort of ground-level editing and stuff are pretty left-brained. Um, so when a sort of really big, you know, pervasive systemic change, a, a paradigm shift, if you will, mm-hmm. in the, uh, the, the thinking of Thomas S. Kuhn, University of Chicago Press author, um, <laughs> when that comes, I think it, it really... Pretty destabilizing it is for anybody. I mean, that's sort of the nature of these kinds of changes. But the people in publishing, I think, are still dealing with. You know, the boat is really still rocking. It's going to keep changing um, for a while. Um, really, we don't know what the ebook, electronic reading, um, sort of landscape will look like in five years. It could be an extension of the way it's going now. There could be some big new device that changes everything. Um, that changes
0: the game, if you will. <laughs> Um, Another revolution if, yes. if I will continue to, Will. <laughs> so so with, with regard to um, – because it is sort – of, there's sort of, a, I guess, a, a magic to it. I mean because, yes, for, for m- myself as well as one um, who enjoys reading, has enjoyed reading, there is a certain – there's definitely a romance attached to the publishing industry. Uh, but I've known – at least had enough acquaintances uh, who've worked in publishing um, and watched um, enough Whit Stillman films. <laughs> to know that that uh, it's also possible for that romance to be uh, stripped away as well. And I'm curious and, – and again, I'm not asking for you to criminate, but I'm just curious like for what – to what degree like – because obviously you have to imagine when you get a book, you say how will readers react to this? How would a reader like myself, for example, react to this? Mm. But then there must also be part of your life um, where – you know, if you're if you're if you're an editor, where you say, um, well, I was, there's, there's also concerns about the um, um the, this, the appeal of this book to you know to a larger swath of of, uh, of the world.
1: Yeah, there's the question of sort of literary quality, you know, that everybody wants. Um, and that's I don't mean that to say like you know in the um, Faulknerian sense, but you read something, be it you know. Um, that book about ravished by the Stegosaurus or whatever that people were enjoying looking at on the internet and joking about, or all the way over to Faulkner and you say, you know, do I like this? Is this good? Mm-hmm. Um, do I appreciate the quality of this? And the answer to that should always be yes for an editor. I mean, you don't want to publish stuff that you think is direct. Um, and then, then there's the sort of actual marketing side, which is uh, pretty daunting because you just really, you never do know what people are going to respond to, and it comes down to sort of merchandising and promotion and all this stuff and sort of branding, um, which is sort of a heinous, um, I don't think anybody ever says branding, speaking of things that people, how often things get said, ironically, I think most people say branding, like they have a mouthful of sort of uh, rotten fruit. Um The, um, just in terms of signaling, you know, what kind of book it is and that happens through the cover design, through the blurbs, through everything else. But it's, it's daunting because a lot of the time you just don't know if it's going to succeed and it's very, very, um, and usually the answer is no, it's not going to succeed. Um,
0: like most things (laughs) in life,
1: most, most books are failures. Um, Everything ends badly. Otherwise, it wouldn't. <laughs> it wouldn't end. Uh, the uh,
0: that's uh, wait, Olivia, there's a, I forget which comedian has a joke but about this. But with regard to marriage, <laughs> is the best way a successful marriage can end is that one of you is heartbroken over the death yes. of the other. <laughs> I, I don't know who it is, but it's right, that's that's the best case scenario. <laughs> uh,
1: and so you know, it's tricky, and that's. Um, And actually one of the things I think the internet has changed in terms of my appreciation for the immediate publishing landscape around me is that the things that people can find their community, um, whatever it is that they like to consume in terms of their stories, it's really refined now. So if you like avant-garde plays about Kluber or, you know, um slash fiction about Alan Iverson whatever you know that's out there you can find that um,
0: written by Alan Iverson it should yeah, be probably
1: written <laughs> uh, written by a, a bot that Alan Iverson hand coded um you know that's out there so book publishing is kind of adhering to this slightly older network model of you know here's a thing that everybody should like and talk about and there are, I think, forces pulling in both directions where people want to have things in common to talk about. I mean, we all know that from when a TV show gets really popular. It's like a thing to talk about around right, the proverbial right, right. water cooler, um, picture of a water cooler on a monitor as mm-hmm. you chat with somebody.
0: Right. Um,
1: but then people also want to sort of follow their own, their own tastes and discover new stuff. So it, it really is, um, the, the sort of dictates of making money and having a successful business often don't align neatly with Um, the sort of artistic or even just sort of individual um, desires of expressing yourself or, you know, expressing yourself through what you choose to read. Um, so publishing is dealing with all of that now. And I think it's just, um, there are some aspects of it that are very, um, very 20th century, like the idea of a warehouse full of books, um, that is expensive and, you know, problematic in a lot of ways that, um, they're trying, they have to sort of find a balance, a way to, to keep doing the things that some people want them to do while doing new things that they need to do. Um, and and right now, everywhere around the world, there are people having like conferences and webinars about the future of publishing. Um, and it's easy to get sort of overwhelmed or blase about it. But I think, you know, the more, um, the more we zoom towards, you know, sort of a automated utopian future, people can only have more time to read. That's the way I feel about it. So, (laughs) <laughs> uh, assuming the planet doesn't overheat.
0: Yeah, they should have more time to read, but people, are, I think, are bad sometimes at taking advantage of their free time.
1: They are. They are.
0: Or, uh, or taking advantage of the conveniences given to them. The tech, which are supposed to create more free time. Uh, yes. Uh, I
1: think, in general, we're, we're moving from, but, I mean, I love books. I will always read books. I think a lot of people, totally smart people who, you know, are you know, thoughtful and everything. Just don't read as much. They watch TV, or and we are living in the golden age of the cable drama. So
0: yeah, so it's <laughs> easy. It's easy enough to do. And yeah. Now, listen. Let's talk about uh, the classical for yeah. a moment here. Um, I, I don't. I, at what point did you? Were you a, Were you on the ground floor there, or? Um, or I was. You, oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So this is. Um, this was a project. Um, um, it's. Well, how long has it been around now?
1: Since um, towards the. End of, I guess the middle end of 2011 was when we initially sort of emerged. I remember I was in the, um the Atlanta airport on a three hour hangover flying to I think a funeral.
0: Wait, a hangover or a layover? Layover, layover. <laughs> that's um, an excellent Freudian slip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's it.
1: It's telling. Um and I got a sort of cryptic uh, Twitter message from Darko, from Nathaniel Friedman saying, um, a.k.a. Bethlehem Schultz, saying, hey, can, can I call you? And um said, sure, why not? I'm stuck in this airport for three hours. And he explained this whole idea behind the classical. And it's gone through, I think, some iterations and sort of versions since then. a lot of the people who were sort of the original original crew had to drop out just because of life. You know, they had kids. They needed to, to do full-time gigs, stuff like that. Um, but it's been a lot of fun, um, you know, from – you know, the website is – Great, it's fun. It's sort of, I think it's pretty. It's a nice little community, and then the magazine is cool too, just because it it sort of allows me to combine my um undying interest in being weird about sports in the internet with watching things.
0: Right, and and so the, would you say that? I mean, you sort of talk about the, the one reason people get involved in publishing is so they can, uh, or that you in fact got involved in publishing is because so you could read so you could publish books that that were the sort that you read? Yeah, I mean,
1: ultimately, on a more sort of, like, basal um, level, it was to have a roof to read things under, Mm -hmm. um, was the reason I kept showing up for work, um, and probably will continue that streak for a while. Um, But, yeah, it was to publish the sort of things that I might like to read. Now, that's probably dangerous, um, given Mm -hmm. that, you know, I like goofy stuff, that, you know, it's... Not the best idea to publish stuff on purpose, or at least if you do, you can't be surprised if no one likes it right, but uh, I would imagine
0: that having an electronic home for something like that it uh, makes it a little bit more easy there's uh there are fewer layers of uh, sort of decision making and uh, people's money that need to be uh, changing hands
1: that's right, yeah the um, the classical has no investors uh, <laughs> <laughs> you
0: have,
1: you don't have a lot of money period um, which is actually totally liberating um uh, completely, completely liberating. Um the the whole process is pretty um uh, were one to pull back the curtain at classical world headquarters, I think you'd be surprised by how um bare bones <laughs> the insides are.
0: Well that's the nice thing about an online presence is you can, it can you can make it seem very professional if you have yes. coding skills Yes. <laughs> one person. <laughs> Uh, the last thing, and then I'll let you go because uh, it should be noted that it's still it's still just what seven thirty something your time. Seven thirty eight. Uh, yeah, what a man. Um, the uh, Cleveland Indians for this year. Hmm. Uh, pro- uh, promising group, including um two of the um, more interesting pitchers in the major leagues. Of course, in uh, Corey Kluber and Danny Salazar.
1: Yes, it must be uh, exciting for you. Yeah, I you know I'm pretty pumped. They um, I think that the Indians may be slightly overachieved last year because they had this sort comically easy stretch of schedule at the end that allowed them to win 10 games in a row. And they played like the Astros and the White Sox 10 times and won all 10 of the games. Um, and so, you know, and then they immediately sort of lost the, um, lost the wild card game in pretty deflating fashion to um, Alex Cobb uh, and the Rays. So, but I think, you know, Indians fans, Spiders fans, I should say. Um, I This is... uh, is, I'm going to use this this soapbox.
0: Please do it, yeah, yeah. To
1: to explain something that I think the nickname Indians doesn't bother me all that much, but frankly I can see how it would bother someone, but Chief Wahoo bothers me a lot. Um, And so my sort of one-man militant, militation against Chief Wahoo is just to refer to the team as the Spiders, which... um, it's, they used to be their nickname in the old National League version of the team in the 1890s, who um, I believe once were the runners-up of the National League. Um, I just call them the Spiders because uh, it makes me feel better about... It allows me to indulge this okay. sort of, um, delusion that Chief Wahoo does not exist. Um, it's also fun because it makes people like, like Chief Wahoo um, very angry. Um the uh the team is gonna be fun to watch. I mean I love Kluber, I love Salazar, I'm a big Justin Masterson fan. Um I think, you know, um I'm also a big fan of rap rocker Trevor Bauer. Um, okay. yeah, not well, he, necessarily because I think it's going to be good, but because I really enjoy his personal style.
0: He um, um he has to throw more strikes. He should definitely does. do that.
1: Well, I mean I found One of the most entertaining games the Spiders played last year was a game in which Trevor Bauer lasted um, less than an inning and I think walked the first four guys he faced, which is just sort of like comical, um, you know, Ricky Vaughn-style wildness. Um, And then it turns out he – I was just listening to the game on the radio and not paying all that much attention, especially given how bad it was going. But it turns out he just started to pitch out of the stretch for no reason at the beginning of the game with no one on base, which – I thought was wonderful. Um especially cuz the team then went on to win, come back and win the game. Um but that sort of um sort of free Wait, radically- this is
0: just a completely of, he did, he made this like a random decision or
1: yeah he pitched out of the stretch from from the first pitch. Hmm. Uh, he's crazy. Um and also he makes rap rock music. Yeah. <laughs> um I do I hope that um Nick Swisher showed some signs of being the sort of reliable old Nick Swisher, mm-hmm. who is not a superstar, but is a, a decent enough corner outfielder or curve, corner bat, um, which for a team that, you know, had Casey Kochman and, um, you know, sort of big names like Ben Broussard, um, manning yeah. first base over the past 10 years, it was nice to have someone who could actually, you know, hit 25 home runs.
0: Although um, I believe, it- I believe the, uh, the, uh, the Clevelanders found their way to some talent by trading not only Ben Broussard, but also, uh, what, Eduardo Perez, like within a month of each other?
1: Yes. The Indians traded both ha- both halves of a bad first base platoon to the Mariners for, um, respectively, Shinsu Chu, who now has a $130 million contract, and Ezra Cabrera, who for a time was a really great shortstop, yeah. or definitely above average shortstop now is kind of done, but does have one of the better first names in the major leagues. Mm-hmm. And also, the Indians have a guy I'm really excited about. We probably won't see this year is Francisco Lindor, um, who is really a great, great uh, shortstop prospect.
0: Right. Yeah. So there's something there.
1: Yeah, and we have the manager of the year for what that counts for. Uh,
0: uh, one of the I, I think um, Terry Francona um, is also responsible for some of the better uh, postgame press conferences you're going to yes. find. Yes.
1: Um, he also rides a um, razor scooter around downtown Cleveland. From okay. His, from his condo to the ballpark
0: yeah you know, clearly uh you have to be pretty confident in your masculinity to to pull that off
1: yeah you gotta own it um and uh that's one thing that I think the Indians the current edition of the Cleveland Indians is all about moving past traditional ideas of masculinity <laughs> <laughs> into a sort of new you know call it third wave um masculinity
0: well all right listen uh Pete, you are a person who has Work today. If you're able to get there or not, we don't know. But yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm gonna let you go. But I, do, I just want to say. Um, well, we'll say goodbye to the listener first, and then we'll say goodbye to each other moments later. Uh, <laughs> goodbye. But I want, I, I want to thank you for participating in you.
1: No problem. I'm it, I'm happy to be here. Long time listener, first time uh, victim.
0: Yeah, that is uh, <laughs> very good. That is a uh, uh, Pete Beatty, uh, a man in publishing, a man also uh, involved intimately, very intimately, uh, with the classical. Uh, I'm Curtis late. This has been Fangraphs Audio.